Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Okay, welcome back to the CIS podcast. I'm your uh, host today, Tony Sager, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sean Atkinson, the CISO of uh, Center for Net Security. Hey, Tony, good to be with you. Yeah, always a pleasure, Sean. I really enjoy the chances that we get to talk about these kinds of things, and uh, it makes uh, good conversation, but it's also educational, I think, for both of us. You know, Sean is a, a real CISO in a real security company. No pressure, Sean, but you know, don't let us down. And uh, I'm a lifelong security geek, kind of security testing person. So I've spent a lifetime telling people what to do, but never having had to do it. Sean is a guy who actually gets things done inside a, a serious security company. So lots of lessons learned there, and lots of uh, chances for us to bounce ideas back and forth. So today we're going to talk about um, you know, a topic that's gotten a, a fair amount of discussion about the kind of dynamics of running cyber defense, right? The, uh, cyber defense, we, we wish it were easier, that there was an easy button or a thing we could buy or a thing we could do, but that's not the nature of the business. And the way I talk about this, I've been using this metaphor for several years now. So I'm a fan of old cheesy, uh, especially science fiction movies. And one of my favorites is Independence Day, uh, featuring Will Smith, if you're familiar with that. And the, the notion there, right, we wish cyber defense we're like that movie, Independence Day, right? We know where the adversary is. The aliens are coming. The mothership is out there. We have one of their captured scout craft and brilliant people are able to take that scout craft, reverse engineer the way it works, are able to fly it, cleverly create a virus. Heroes fly up to the alien mothership, deliver the virus, escape just in time. Boom, go the aliens, celebratory cigar, and the defenders come back, you know, heroics, parade, etc. Well, you know, Sean and I have been in this business for decades between us, right? Uh, not, how many parades have there been for you as a defender, Sean? Not that many that I can recall. You know, there's that's the problem. Yeah, that's the problem with this cyber defense stuff is there's no event, right? There's no singular ending. There's no one heroic invention. There's no act of courage that will save us. It never ends, right? It, it, it's... It's more about this complexity of the processes and all the things. So, so the movie it's more like, and I think I'm sure many of you remember the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, right? An information-driven machine. He relives the same day over and over again. And eventually he gets clever and he starts making changes and kind of understand what the impacts of those changes are. And sometimes they're positive, sometimes they're not. But it's, the, the lesson is cyber defense is more like that, right? It's an information-driven machine. It's about being able to repeatedly take in information, take action, and do things over and over again. And lots of people have talked about notions like this over the years, you know, and you, uh, I used to give a series of talks about OODA loops. If you come from a military background, that might resonate. So OODA is an acronym for Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. And it's a way to think about this decision-making process in a repeated cycle, right? I gather information, I sort of put it into context, I make a decision and I do it all over again. And in the military context is about if I can operate my OODA loop faster than my adversary, this came from aerial dogfighting as a matter of fact, then I have a distinct information advantage. And that's closer to the nature of the cybersecurity problem that we all face. And so, so uh, in this episode, we're gonna talk a little bit about kind of the dynamics of that, right? How do you get started? How do you think about these things? This is an abstract model 
but at the end of the day, you have to do concrete things. And you've got to do all these actions, right? Gather information, put it in context, make decisions, take actions, and then sort of see where you are and do it all again. So, so uh, Sean, I know you've given a lot of thought to these kinds of issues, but you know, so to help me understand kind of your thinking as a CISO and, and where do you get started in this, you know, it's an appealing abstract idea, but how do you turn it into reality and where do you begin? How, how would you advise others, others think about the starting point for this? Sure. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Uh, and uh, again, you know, the OODA loop, I, I just want to use this as well as uh, a little mm -hmm. story is, um, Okay. Many of us, um, I think in the field, do it, but just don't realize that we're actually doing, you know, an observe, orient, decide, act process, but we are. And the way I reflect that is when I first started at CIS, let me use this as a little analogy, you know, came into an organization um, and, you know, you get these, um, the first 90 days, what do you do as a CISO? And so for me, it was asking a lot of questions. Um, but my questions and how to get started, the way I look at kind of the world of controls is with data, is what data do we have, where is it, and what do we do with it? And then once we've used it or taken all the value from it, then where does it go? And so I started asking a lot of questions about data. You know, what do we have um, as an organization? Where is it? Or what are we processing? And are there any regulatory controls around that particular data set? And, you know, this gets into, and, and Tony, I'm going to reflect something back to you, is um, one of your great talks, I think one of your most popular, I believe, the, the Fog of More. So I walked into the organization, and we've got, you know, the fog of everything in terms of controls. And so I came and I was like, okay, this is great. You know, we've got a lot of um, telemetry. We need to do something right. I need to change that from just simple telemetry to information, to value that would then influence the organization, right? So that was then first created uh, policy and standards um, based on this data analysis that I did. And really, you could form that into a business impact analysis and say, okay, we've got all this data. What are we doing it? What's the consequence of any one of the systems in which it interacts? Is there any issue, cause or causality um, in terms of that being hacked, we losing data, the integrity, uh, availability, and confidentiality. So we could throw a little CIA into the perspective there as well. But really it was, um, when I looked at it, I walked into, um, and again, I was asking the questions to provide clarity because of that fog of more. And it was, you know, looking at the regulations, what we were doing for compliance frameworks, what are we doing for threat intelligence, how's our risk being managed, and really from a compliance perspective was then looking at it two lenses. So I look at it from a compliance lens with me instituting standards and procedures and things of that nature, but also from the security lens is, am I thinking about our adversary? Am I thinking about the gaps within our systems the right way? And so I just asked a lot of questions. So Tony, um, does that make sense in terms of really a perception of how it is to manage security controls and really just starting, you know, walk into an organization or if you're in an organization and it's, um, you know, uh, I'll real reflect the fog of more. I think there's a lot to talk about with respect to that as to how do I really get my hands around this and feel comfortable? Because that's a, that's another issue we need right. to discuss as well. I think, and thank you for picking up on that theme. That that's been one of my people still walk up to me and say, "Hey, you're the fog guy," <laughs> you know, and, and they don't, I think they mean it positively. What what they're saying is, I, I get I get why this is hard. Or they say, "My boss finally gets it right." And the point of it is not confusion. It's that you, it's overwhelming. 
there is so much information, so many controls, so many opinions. And so I think you're, you know, your opening approach, right, is a powerful one. Now, now a consultant will come and say, we've got to look for the crown jewels. And that is, that is true and that is important. But I think that undersells the challenge here, right? And, and, and my experience, and again, your observation would be welcome, you know, often um, organizations mat- or, uh, evolve through sprawl rather than design, right? You sort of add this and I need to make a server for that and I need a function for this. And so you've, you know, it's easy to find yourself going, well, where is our data? You know, and not realize all the complexities under the hood of right where it moves and who has access. And, you know, you have all these complicated business relationships of subcontractors coming in and out and, third, you know, uh, supply chains and all this. So, you know, sort of pausing to say that and the point of this, the fog metaphor was not to be overwhelmed, but to say, I need to cut through that. Right. What are the things that really matter? And so you took the approach, right, which is, I think, that rational and sensible is about what is really important here? Where is it? Who controls it? Who creates it? And you know, if I can't get a handle on that, then I, I don't know where to drive my control strategy, right? And it's easy to get hung up in the, I need more things. I, I, oh, I don't see this kind of you know, favored tool. And I will say, again, my experience working with folks that have been in your jobs, right, you get this sort of executive pressure too. Uh, you know, here's the latest whiz-bang tool from the market and the boss is going, why don't we have that? Do we have that? You know, my friend, uh, the, the you know, military context, right? my friend I went to West Point with is now the VP of marketing for this company and they say, I need this. Well, Sean, why don't we have this? You know, so there's a lot of external pressures also to get, and what you're doing is you're actually adding more fog, right? More stuff. And until you sort of figure out what, what is going on. Now, now we can talk about it, you know, back to the OODA loop, right? The, to me, this is about what are the inputs to the machine? You know, what is it? And when you think of this as machinery, then you start to think of things like, what are the inputs? How do I efficiently process them? What are the outputs, right? And, and who gets to see that or who needs to, that kind of information? So I think that that's consistent. And I think is, you know, it's always hard to come in, especially I think in a security company, right? And you're sort of thinking security companies. I worked in a government agency that was a security agency. And the feeling was, well, we're, you know, we're, we're really good at this because we're a security company, but that has not been my experience, right? There's a lot of uh, sort of thinking about it, but the, the implementation is much more challenging. So anyway, so, so I think that was a great start. And I think it's very consistent with this idea of sort of cutting through to what really matters. And then once I have this in hand, kind of what are the next things that I should start thinking about? The regulatory thing, tell me a little bit more about that though, because that's, I haven't dealt with that directly, but you know, that's that's obviously of high interest to bosses and auditors and and others that look over and sort of juggling the demands of that with what your observations were uh, to start. Sure. No, absolutely. Thank you. It's um, one of the ways I look at regulatories in in some kind of it's forcing new rules, right? So it, it's uh, you're changing the way I play the game, you know, of this attack defense model, as it were. So the rules have changed in terms of now I've got to focus a lot more on providing audit and evidence of I comply with a particular control. And that has value and it has function. So let me give you an example. So when I first started at the organization, May 25th, 2018, GDPR. Okay, so a whole new privacy requirement. And so, you know, people are struggling between, well, is privacy security or is it, you know, business operations? It's both, it's really everything in in the organization. If you're collecting that particular data, 
obviously from the EU and uh, things of that nature, is you then have to consider your controls with these new rules in place. So where's the data house? So I do an input process mm -hmm. output type of, type of assessment. So I'm looking, okay. what's the input into this process? Okay, so we collect uh, a, Europe, uh, a citizen of the EU's data. Okay, now where is that stored? What are the processes? What are we doing with that? What type of data are we collecting? And then this now is, now I'm trying to orient myself to having observed the fact that we've got this data that now is under this regulatory requirement. Now I have to orient the organization in order to understand what that means in terms of compliance. Because again, there is a, uh, you know, the big hammer of GDPR is the underlying fines if you're, you know, not doing the right things with the data in hand. And so we're assessing then the applicability of our controls. Do they meet the requirement of this new privacy control? And now we get into, um, you know, other areas as well. And, and one other area that we as an organization wanted to mature from was um, building ourselves against a um, really an attestation or an assessment. So we chose SOC 2. Um, so SOC 2, uh, type 1 this year, uh, last year, sorry, type 2 this year. And it, it's really just evaluating our, our, our premise of that we're a security company and we do things very well. And every company needs to ask that question because it's always great to get those external insights in order to see where your weaknesses are that you may have either one, not understood or observed or either oriented yourself to because you didn't believe they were an underlying risk. Now, this then moves us into the decide, you know, what are we going to do with that now that we've found this? So it was it was an enlightening process because you're thinking about it differently. So within the organization, obviously, we're using the CIS controls. You know, I've I, basically I say I was brought up on the CIS controls. Uh, version five uh, was my first uh, introduction to them in many organizations. And so I've kind of grown up with with them, as it were, as part of my, this is what I want to see in an organization. And then obviously coming to the organization was fantastic. So seeing those in place and but seeing them from another perspective with it, you know, our compliance was always around using CSAT or a secures assessment tool in order to say, you know, this is our percentage of, you know, IG1, IG2, IG3. Fantastic. But there are other considerations in terms of our overall fog, as it were, that we need to consider. We can't be myopic and just walk right through the fog, as it were. There are other areas that we need to view and observe for us then to orient ourselves to uh, what is our real landscape of control. And that includes compliance. Tell me, uh, you, know, you referenced uh, assessment and, and you know, one of the challenges how about the value of independent assessment, right? When you bring someone in to do that, because again, in organizations, it's easy to either kind of gloss over the hard problems or make assumptions that turn out to, not to be true. Or do you have examples or, you know, do you see that as you know, the, the value gained from this independent look at what, what you have done? Absolutely. Absolutely. The independent look for me really starts to uncover your operational risks. Um, as you mentioned, you may be glancing over things that you do not think are important, but when you look at the totality of all of these put together, so these can be in combination, they could be siloed and isolated issues within an organization. So let's say vulnerability management, for example. Well, we scan these particular assets. Okay. Why? Oh, well, the interconnection between them is a lot easier to do than our other systems that we don't really um, know about. You know, we've gone through this sprawl 
and our underlying change management process hasn't incorporated these systems because either one, it's not easy to do, or two, the persons doing vulnerability assessment are not aware that these systems even exist, adding more to the fog, as it were. So then it's bringing these observations together and saying, well, we don't have a comprehensive program, even though we thought we did because of the sprawl, because of the underlying change management, because of the underlying issues that we may not have seen because of these incremental increases in just functionality. And you do, and you know, you bring up a good point, Tony, is there's the, there's also the fact that you can have many different sources of this information. If you over tool and provide too much data into a process, um, basically you're trying to figure out what's the right information. What, what should, what is, am I relying on to provide me that the effectiveness of this control actually is in place. And without that, you're basically, uh, oh, I think we look good. You know, I've got all this telemetry and it looks, you know, I know everything that's going on in our environment. Okay, good. Have we baselined? Do we know what our environmental norm norm is? Or do we get to the fact that we're just receiving all this data and are not processing it away that allows us to move then from this orientation of receiving all this information to a decision? You know, are we mitigating risk? Are we looking at an appropriate strategy? Are we able to decide whether or not we are what I'll call secure or in control? And, you know, the in control can be looking then from that external auditor's perspective to say, well, we see some gaps. There are questions that cannot be answered. And those questions are very important. And without the answer to them and having to go through that internal assessment, um, it's pretty difficult. I mean, I've been in a few situations where I haven't known the answer. Uh, again, this was another organization and it's, well, I've got to go investigate. I've got to see if whether or not that my orientation is completely skewed because I missed a whole department or a whole compartment of information that was housed in another tool that I didn't know existed. So your inventory of these tools, assets, and these data flows of the business process, extremely important, extremely important. And the auditors just think about it a little bit differently. You know, they ask, right. they're, you know, kind of the mind of the defender. It's like, you know, think like the attacker, red team these processes so you find it before they do. The audit perspective is just asking questions. What, you know, orient me to what you're doing in this environment and where all this information is coming from. No, I think it's a, it's a very powerful model. I mean, I remember going through this in the defense department, you know, and um, I love your term telemetry, by the way, because that's exactly right. <laughs> and it's easy to flood yourself with it in the name of, you know, well, like, more is better, right? But usually, again, especially in a big enterprise, what you wind up doing is you wind up overusing a, what I'll call the human integration engine, right? They are literally drowning in these reports and unable to make sense of it, right? So, you know, it's a case where um, more information is often more fog rather than useful information and you're trying to you know, you're trying to pull that together into something that, that makes sense I think this also um, speaks to part of your uh, I'll call it machinery design right if we talk and we're talking really uh, primarily about the upfront part of this you know uh, I grew up in a world sort of classical I'll call them computer security processes where you, know, you used a certain kind of component you would uh, have an independent uh, assessment evaluation. That was a, the term that we used in government. But a lot of this was about creating evidence to prove or demonstrate to someone else you did the right thing. And so much of that evidence, at least for the first few decades of this business, was pa well, frankly paper. 
right? You'd write a report explaining why you did good and why this was protected and blah, blah, blah. And it'd be, and of course, you anytime you have sort of two versions, right? You have sort of reality of what's actually running and you have a paper report, you're guaranteed they're out of sync, right? They can never stay in sync. And so this, this problem of evidence and what should you be doing to think about, you know, best case, right? The technology we run creates most of the evidence I need to demonstrate that I've behaved responsibly. So talk to me a little bit about that kind of thing, because I know you've thought about that a lot, right? And away from these sort of, I'll call them paper processes, where you, you create a large document to what can the technology tell me that will demonstrate some level of conformance or compliance or whatever the model is? Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, when we move into that space, um, there is a lot in terms of the underlying process to extract that information from the tooling. And so I just wanted to go back to one of the things you'd mentioned, you know, the, the, the new shiny tool, we've got to integrate this, this is great information for our environment is, you know, is the underlying value being added because it could just be another um, area that you have to go kind of poll, as it were, to poll reports and things of that nature. One of the big things that, you know, from the tooling perspective and from this, uh, really the decision of the UDA model is, um, can what can I observe then orient myself to in terms of contextualizing that information to make a good decision? And so as I start to look through, uh, you know, reports and looking at the systems and what they're providing me, you know, we've got alerting, we've got continuous monitoring. Fantastic. This is giving me information to make decisions about if we're seeing, you know, a particular adversarial threat and a, a tactic with an underlying technique being exposed or being utilized against our system. That's great. Now we can start to build ourselves against um, really some automation in that process. Now, not moving to a complete, uh, you know, security orchestration, automation and response processes, although those, you know, very popular uh, term now is to integrate those tools into the environment and allow uh, really machine action based on, you know, defined rules. That's, you know, that has utility. Um, but really, as I'm looking at these systems, you know, I'm looking to see whether or not the decisions we've made comply with our current processes, are people compliant with the underlying standards and policy, and our compliance rule set from a regulatory perspective, are those in alignment? Can I at least prove and at least show that we've got levels of control? And it varies on the underlying framework in order to produce that type of evidence. Because in some cases, and this is this is true of many systems, I have to change the way in which I view that information in order to provide it as evidence for an, uh, an audit, an assessment, um, or external third-party review. And that's critically important, because if those two are not interlined, I've just doubled really my observational work to then provide you know the orientation to multiple groups. And that can be... Um, that can be test, you know, trying at some points in time uh, in order to get this information in a format that others can consume when really, you know, that gets to your compliance side of the equation when really the security side is, you know, what we're valuing as the value proposition or the return on investment of doing all these activities. You know, the compliance then takes another element of that and uh, really then... Um, we try to orient ourselves in a way and try and provide, you know, really education in terms of this is how we're viewing this information. This is what this visualization is showing. Can you use that in terms of providing the evidence and the audit capability and really the oversight 
of what we're doing in our environment. So there's, you know, there's kind of a two-way door there uh, working with external uh, auditors and assessors. I really appreciate the way you characterized, you know, security people think a particular way and auditors think. And I, I do recall, uh, you know, in the Defense Department, again, writing several articles about the, exactly that topic, right? What are the what are the reasonable questions a decision maker wants to ask of his technology? You know, a, a new thing is reported. Where does it affect me? Does it change my risk profile? Yeah, and that's a very rational way to think about it, right? Because at the end of the day, that's that's what we're trying to solve. We're not trying to build more stuff or buy more things or get more in data out of our tooling. We're trying to make rational decisions, and I think that's a healthy way to to characterize and think about that. Also, the um, you know, there, there's also the um, this this question oriented approach says you want to design this up front, right, to make answering those questions easy, which means you have to anticipate them and you have to kind of think about how do I design my machinery to allow me to do this. The other thing that I think is an important point you made uh, that was implicit in what you said, and I, and I remember hearing this from a number of uh, CISO type friends over the industry, you know, if you don't have a framework, then it's hard to hold back the next shiny toy that comes in the door. If, if you do have a plan, then you have a way to kind of keep that at bay. It said that's an interesting idea, but it doesn't fit the things that we are trying to do, the questions we are trying to answer, etc. And actually, someone told me that um, one of the big financial sector companies uh, in the early days of the controls, he said, you know, what I really like about them is that once I had this plan, I get the I got the boss to sign off on it, and he, but he's the worst one, keeps showing up with a new shiny toy from an old friend of his, and I said, well, that's interesting, but that doesn't give us anything that we're, you know, here's our roadmap that you already agreed to based on the controls. And so, you know, again, I, I never had to face those kind of practical challenges that you have, right? So having a structure allows you to sort of put it in context, right? This, this uh, orient myself and to say that that's a neat idea, but that undoes our entire plan and doesn't seem to provide any obvious value. So I think that's another, again, healthy way for you to, to talk about that. Let me, let me ask you one other question I've been dying to ask, uh, Sean. Around, um, I, I often say perfection is often the enemy of the good in security. That is, we don't do things because, well, you know, old security geeks, nothing personal, uh, will come up with five exceptions or three more edge cases or, you know, a bad guy could, you know, if the sun and moon and stars lined up just right, this bad thing could happen. And it often paralyzes people, right? Because, oh, doggone it, you know, yet another thing. But, you know, the metaphor I used, and I'd love to hear your take on it, was that my dad grew up as an army supply sergeant, right? And when we talk about things, we use physical metaphors like inventory. Well, my dad was a supply charger who was responsible for inventory. And, you know, he once told me, he never, never forgot, he never knew exactly what he had, right? There was always some uncertainty and float in the system. And he said whenever the inspector was coming, and this is an old guy anecdote, he would load up all the equipment that he had that wasn't on the books and send it for a... Uh, a, a fresh air ride, you know, in a deuce and a half in a big army truck, because if he didn't do that, then he had nothing to trade with the other supply sergeants for stuff that they didn't have, you know, and that's, but, but the point was, there was always some uncertainty and float in the system, but it didn't affect the decision making, right? When the commander was deciding, are we ready to go? They had learned to manage within some, you know, modest amount of uncertainty, right? Exactly how many boxes of bullets or guns or, you know, piece of equipment they had. Is there a, is there a, a you know, a parallel to that in the way we think about security? Are we over-focused over on these edge cases and exceptions? And how do you kind of manage that within your uh, the jobs that you do? 
Sure. No, absolutely. The way I look at it is from two perspectives. Um, and I love the, you know, perfection is the enemy of the good. Um, that looks for your, con one is control implementation. Do I need to be perfect in terms of controls to feel satisfied that I've done a good job, basically? And then I'll reflect it also from the attack defense model is, you know, let's say we have these annual assessments, okay? So we've got in, we've orientated ourselves, we've got to a decision and the act is, you're good to go. You, you've provided all the evidence. Um, tomorrow, that could change completely. The threat landscape is so dynamic that we have really, you know, there is always uncertainty in terms of our level of control. Uh, and again, you know, there's the analogy of the attackers have to be right once, the defender has to be right all the time. Let's reflect on that. It, you know, it's hard to be right all the time. There is no way of achieving that, even with a new tool, right? You know, the new shiny... I, I, I wouldn't want to see that in my job description, Sean. I don't know if it's in yours, but... <laughs> I think it was, uh, yeah, I think it was very small font at the bottom of mine. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this uncertainty is what we have to deal with. And what we're doing is risk-based processes to reduce the overall impact, because we're not going to have a perfect system that eliminates all risk doesn't exist okay so we have to look at it from a risk-based process we get into that decision of the uh, OODA loop so we're deciding on what makes sense for our organization does this tool as you just mentioned integrating that into our processes does that reduce our risk at any particular level to any particular point that we're comfortable so we have you know our underlying risk appetite and we have our tolerances and I think the exception gets into the tolerances, right? You know, I can send some things on an, uh, <laughs> a fresh air run, as it were, in order to look at perfection. But in our case, it's really looking and then deciding on what is the best process. You know, we articulate risk through impact and probability. Okay, fantastic. But let's take a look at what those are, because we're, we're never going to have a perfect system. It, it just, it's not going to, the system itself is not going to allow us to achieve that. Um, just where we are, what we do, attack, defense, risk, compliance, things of that nature. But we can do things that allow us to feel comfortable that our decisions have put in an appropriate remediation strategy, as it were, to allow us comfort in what we're trying to do and that any, I'll use telemetry again, of underlying attacks, attacks that we see in the wild, that we've done our best in order to prevent the threat of those attacks actualizing themselves in our environment. And if we can do that, that's, you know, I think at the end of the day, that that's the job. And sure, there's going to be different, um, you know, massive breaches of underlying supply chain. And, you know, you're going to have to react. But there's no way in certain cases that you can predict everything and have a perfect. You basically would develop everything yourself and not have anything connected to the Internet. Isolate everything if you're trying to get to perfection. That's right. Uh... No, perfection uh, Perfection is not the goal because then we're operationally not viable, right? We're not doing anything useful at that stage. And I think that's, you know, there's a tendency to think of the attacker as 10 feet tall and performing magic. And I, I've often said that, uh, so you talked about your uncertainty as a defender, right? Because that's the nature of it. The, the technology is uncertain and fragile and all these things. But, you know, I think I, I've often said that the defensive technique we haven't figured out yet is the attacker uncertainty, right? They have a model too. They don't like to get caught. They don't want to spend more money. They, you know, and, and attacker uh, preferences can vary by culture. You know, some 
countries don't seem to care if they get caught, right? Because they blame it on somebody else or, you know, and, and you know, I, I can speak to the U.S. sort of implicit strategy, right? We spend a lot of money to make sure we uh, don't get in the press and we don't lose lives. You know, that's, that's a cultural and so you have to be aware of attackers have a model also, right? And so your goal is not perfection. Your goal is to help raise their uncertainty also. And, and people have studied this at a research level, right? Moving target defense and sort of researching things like that, which is you know, out of reach for most, most companies. But the notion, I think, is an important one, which is they're not perfect either. You know, I once proposed a, a thought piece, don't, don't laugh, <laughs> to the Defense Department. Imagine if the Defense Department were a nimble adopter of technology. What are the implications for attackers, right? That means they have to spend a lot of time and energy to catch up, right? Now, in other words, if the DOD could buy things quickly, uh, patch them quickly, configure, reconfigure them quickly, and, you know, and there have been a lot of attempts around that in many a big enterprise. You actually, and I'm speaking as someone who, a lifelong defender who lived inside a uh, national intelligence agency, uh, you actually create tremendous uncertainty and cost for the attacker also, right? Because they've got a, their reconnaissance is only good for a limited amount of time now. Their implants may get booted out and they have to reestablish, right? Which gives you new opportunities to see or block and so forth. So the idea is if you think of uh, defense and attack in this holistic, and you talked about sort of a risk managed way, right? You know, you're not going to stop them all. But I, I, I can look at these trade offs and I can also, um, you know, conservatively, you want to assume the bad guys are good because <laughs> that's a fair assumption. But to assume they're perfect now paralyzes you because you can't get to. A defensive statute that makes any sense, right? You can no longer make decisions in a way that allows you to operate. Hey, and life is full of uncertainty. And by the way, our lives are full of risk in all kinds of dimensions. And so we somehow learn to deal with things like flying on the commercial plane or dealing with uh, pandemics or public health issues. And you know, somehow we we learn to make decisions in a way that sort of accounts for this, you know, that that little float or that uncertainty about inventory and all these others. So, so thanks, Sean. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, thoughtful way to talk about this. And again, if you don't have a structure, you know, people people get really hung up on the term frameworks, you know, and I just think of them as sort of decision mechanisms, right? The way that you bring information and how you process it, you know, the, all the things you described, you, you talked about it as an OODA loop. A, a framework gives you a, a, a structure within which to do those kinds of things and, and do it repeatably, right? And do it sort of independent of your personality or your specific um, background, but in a way that can then be, you know, embraced as part of the decision model for the executives, for example, in the company. So, and yeah, any other uh, sort of thoughts that you'd like to share about sort of your initial thinking, right? The, that assessment and you, you know, give it some, some great tips to the, uh, you know, if you think through a lot of things up front, a lot of things later on become easier. Any other, any other advice for folks that are struggling with this? Yeah. You know, the, the, the next one would be, you know, looking at kind of strategic and operational levels within the organization. Those themselves have different orientations, right? And so being part of those and working directly, uh, and I'll put the, I, I can't emphasize this enough because I have a great relationship with the chief information officer, the, the CIO of CIS. We work in tandem. And without that relationship and without utilizing his strategic input, to affect my underlying orientation for the organization as we move forward, as integrating new tools, new technologies, and things of that nature, because there is, 
you know, consistency, uh, as you mentioned, in terms of, you know, our supply chain, that's changing. We've got uh, new ways of doing business, you know, cloud oriented systems. Um, you know, we're moving then into now the uh, the AI age and what does that mean for the organization? These things from a strategic level need to be considered. And then is, you know, what is the underlying regulation against any of those or the underlying security controls, which may be a little bit different in terms of how we're deciding and making decisions based on the integration. So I can't stress enough. Having that relationship for me has been the key to success. Without it, I would be... I'd still trying to be observed, basically, if we, you know, keep using the OODA loop. Now I've got a place where I can act and act confidently because I've got this information sharing. And it also works with the business because I'll just as a little vignette um, as we move uh, into really our next episode is I think we should continue um, moving past this as well from the assessment into maybe implementation is when we look at the decide side of the house, You've got very different perspectives. You've got a business decision that needs to be made. You're looking at a security decision. You're looking at a, an effective decision from a financial perspective. You're looking at other regulatory requirement. And you've got all these kind of different ways of thinking about the same problem. What I'm trying to do is orient people in terms of making a decision that's based on the underlying risk looking at our privacy, regulatory, security, and just trying to make good decisions that are based on, you know, kind of this risk decision-making, as it were. So again, just a few uh, little elements there. No, thanks for bringing it up. And the, the relationship with you and the CI, you, you and Angelo, is a really, as an observer here, is a really strong one, as, as you described, right? And, uh, you know, we're not that big a company, but, but it, it's not a function of size. I've seen, you know, kind of the policy side, you know, proclaiming on high and the IT people heading down a different road and sort of just struggling with technology. But again, as an observer, I watch you guys work very closely. I think one one uh, example might be the way we were able to shift to a work from home environment last year. You know, that was both technology, policy, training, executive decision making, all that kind of wrapped up in a, you know, in a very compressed schedule that, and I looked at it afterwards and go, wow, how did that happen so smoothly? You know, well, it wasn't there was certainly sort of, I'll call it heroic activity during a compressed period of time, but it really felt like it was the work the year before that really made the difference, right? That is putting things in place, building that relationship, and the machinery is there. Uh, the capacity was, was built that could allow us to do some things that we could not have done the, the year before. And so all that, I think, was speaks well and talks about this relationship between you and the, you know, sort of the, you know, and you, you certainly understand technology, but being able to synchronize uh, executive decision making with the with the technology with the policy and kind of all in one lump and you know when it's dysfunctional then what you see is executives sort of demanding kind of a technical answer right are we safe you know or you know is or they're focused on the headlines of hey here's the attack that hit our competitor are we safe and and those are you know those are important but they can send you chasing after tactical issues and missing the decision-making machinery that you have described, I think, very well here. So, yeah, so, so Sean, you know, uh, great discussion. And, and a lot of this was about sort of thinking about these sort of decision uh, mechanisms, right? Whether we call it an OODA loop or a, or a cheesy science fiction movie approach or, or whatever, uh, or risk management framework, which is kind of the industry way to talk about it. And so I think that's been helpful to set the stage for 
how you come in, how you get started, how, you know, what, what is the role relative to decision making. So, so I, I, I think um, we have more to talk about. So let's make that another episode that we'll address uh, uh, next time around and think about some of these, some of the implications of really implementations and sort of the, now we have a machine. Well, how does the feedback loop operate, right? How do we take in all this? And you gave a great example towards the end there of, you know, it's no use waiting for change to slow down. Right? It's, it's not going to happen. Therefore, we should design for it. Right? Our machinery is about sensing what's coming, right? having partnerships and technology and uh, information sources that allow us to sense the environment and then you know, adapt as we need to. So let's, let's make that the topic for our next time out. So any closing thoughts you'd care to share with the uh, audience this time? No, thank you, Tony. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, again, part two is the actualization of kind of this discussion. So I think it's going to be a great episode and can't wait, Tony. Thank you. Oh, same for me. It's always a pleasure, Sean. And I always learn some new things and uh, really appreciate all the great work that you do for the company and uh, the chance to share it with a larger community because that's really what CIS is about, right? It's how do we sort of learn things and make sure that the best available practices are available, you know, to, to our constituency and to anyone who's out there. That's, that's really a great part of being here at CIS. So with that, uh, thanks, thank you all listeners and thank you, Sean, and we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.